Hey everyone, sorry for the delay on the last few episodes of this season. A lot has happened within the story and in the world in general, and I wanted to be sure I infused some of that into this season before we got to the end. Thank you for chugging along with me. If you want to continue to support the podcast, please review and rate on iTunes and share with your friends and family. Also, I am looking for potential accidental shooting stories for season two. If you know someone, shoot me an email at tommy at tommycraven.com. No pun intended there. And now, last time on Shot. My relationship with religion has always been a little flimsy, but when your mom wakes up from her second surgery after being shot, after you've been told to plan for death, after you just got done praying, religion isn't something you can just dismiss anymore. If you're not from there, if you don't have generations of people from Jasper, and and in some ways if you're not Catholic, um, then you're an outsider. It's very easy to attack religion, and I've done that in the past in very unproductive ways. You know, I think I think especially um, right now in in this particular moment in history, it's important for us to go back and to and to pay attention to. Um, the civil rights movement um, in the last century in this country and to see how it was that that faith was an incredibly important part of that movement. That's why it's so interesting to me that you said, you know, I just needed to, to say that something that, that wasn't going to show up with good advice and that wasn't going to show up to explain everything. And something that wasn't going to say, oh, no, no, you need to think this way about this or that way about that. Like the, the absolute um, best and most prevalent stories of Jesus in the Gospels are the one where he just shows up and he's with people. At the beginning of this podcast, I brought up blame and all the individuals that could have been at fault the night of the shooting, and who could have been at fault for a myriad of other things in my and my mom's life. Something I haven't done really is critique myself. If someone else from my life were to make a podcast about this story, what would they say about me? Would I be happy with what they said? I've tried to be as unbiased as possible, or at least let you know when I'm being fully opinionated. I hope you've been able to ask questions to yourself beyond what I've proposed, and that you haven't taken everything I've said at face value. You should be critiquing my thoughts and my actions as much as I've done to others. It's really only fair in my eyes. Problem is that because I created this podcast, I can't write a truly honest episode about myself. I can try, and you can fill in the blanks but I don't know if it would be the same as hearing it from someone else's perspective. Originally, I had planned for this episode to be about all the fucked up things I think happened in the week after my mom was stabilized and the doctor announced that she would pull through. I was going to highlight the extremely problematic actions of others that I think deserve the title, Fucked Up. But while this episode is going to follow those exact same events, I won't be giving you any of my thoughts or asides or opinions on these matters as it relates to other people. I'm only going to question myself and my actions. I know I know. I'm still telling this from my perspective, so keep that in mind. But I will be as removed as possible. 
And in the next episode, I'm inviting everyone that's been brought up in this podcast to come on and talk about whatever they have problems with. Sound good? But for now, here's what happened in the week after my mom's last surgery. And you can more accurately decide who is truly fucked up. shot by her teenage son in an Evansville parking lot. It happened during the Black Friday rush. Craven was shot in the back and was taken to a local hospital for treatment. The family released a statement to us saying she raised five kids as a single parent, so she's very strong. There are four basic rules of gun safety that we talk about. And if you follow these rules, you're not going to have an accident. For every criminal killed in self-defense, 32 innocent people died, 78 guns were used in suicides, and two accidental deaths occurred. But if you don't do what's the right thing, you're not going to have, either you're not going to have a second amendment, you're not going to have much of it left, and you're not going to be able to protect yourselves, which you need. Welcome to Shot, a new podcast featuring intimate true stories of accidental shootings and their aftermath. This first season is called The Night My Brother Shot My Mom With My Ex-Boyfriend's Gun. I'm Tommy Craven. And this is Fucked Up People. Now let me start by saying I think everyone is a little bit fucked up. Granted, some are more than others, but isn't it all about perspective? Let's use spanking kids for example. I personally think striking your kids at all is wrong. I believe it instills violence as a way of correcting behavior. So when those kids are adults, they believe they can correct situations and other people's actions with violence. That's my perspective. Another way of looking at it is that beating your child is wrong, but a spank on the butt relates pain to wrongdoing. So if you don't do something wrong, pain won't happen. Translated into adults, people do the right thing because they don't want pain. I'm simplifying this psychology and its implications completely, but what I'm getting at is there are a lot of ways to infer something from a situation. Where I can't budge is when there is actual well-documented evidence for something but people claim otherwise, such as climate change. There's really no perspective here other than climate change exists and we need to fix it. Any other opinion is, well, fucked up. But I promise that the events I'm laying out today fall way more into the gray area, where it's really hard to know who was right and wrong, or if right and wrong even apply. I would have loved to write this episode telling you how right I was in everything that I did, but I want to do what a lot of people I've talked about in this podcast haven't done, sit back and ask myself what I did wrong. About a day after her surgery, my mom was able to have a tube pulled out of her throat that allowed her to talk to us. She really wasn't able to at first because her throat was so sore and dry that it wasn't good for her vocal cords to start back up. 
One of the things she was able to muster was about how tight my Aunt Kelly had been squeezing her hand the entire time. Kelly thought that my mom had wanted her to squeeze her hand before and after surgery as a sign of comfort. It was the opposite. My mom kept complaining that her hand hurt so bad, but Aunt Kelly was just happy to see her talking. Something Aunt Kelly wasn't happy about was seeing the kid's stepmom, Jane, at the hospital. They hadn't gotten along in the past and both had smarted whatever off to the other one. At one point, on that Sunday after my mom's surgery, Greg and Jane brought the kids back down to see my mom. Remember, Aunt Kelly hadn't been at the hospital when Jane was, and Jane hadn't been there when Aunt Kelly was, so this was the first time they were both at the hospital together. Aunt Kelly went off. I wasn't around for the exact interaction, but I know there was some cussing and a directive for Jane to not show her face in my mom's room. Greg pulled me aside and said that he was going to file a restraining order against Kelly for how she acted. Aunt Kelly was my mom's protector as much as anyone else, and Jane and my mom obviously didn't get along, so I understood Kelly's side. But I also saw Greg and Jane's side. They were there to make sure the kids had someone to go to if they needed it. Of course, they would be there. I guess my bad in the whole situation is that I didn't try to mediate them both. These disgruntled attitudes weren't healthy for the kids or my mom, and I'm sure no one at the hospital cared to hear two grown women bitching at each other. I sure in the hell didn't have time for it. My brother Derek from the military, who had gotten in from Japan, joined the kids around my mom's bed in her room. Everyone chatted, but there wasn't a clear script for anyone in that room. I don't think anyone knew exactly what to say to each other. But per my mom's request, she wanted alone time with Kevin, the brother who shot her. I remember seeing her cry, and her dry throat wouldn't let her make out any words. She was so weak, but she wrapped her skinny arms with tubes dangling around Kevin and told him that she didn't blame him and that she loved him something she had communicated over and over again before her surgery through the letter board, but now was finally able to say in person. Thinking back to this time, I don't think I really gave the support to Kevin that I should have, or the time that I should have to Derek. Before the shooting, I had gotten in a big fight with Derek over some racist comments his fiance had made at the time on Facebook. As much as I still believe how she handled the situation was wrong, I should have taken this time to talk to Derek about it instead of brushing it off as no big deal. I wouldn't say that Derek and Kevin and I were ever as close as I was to Stephen and Brittany. I think a large part was because they were closer to their dad, who I didn't like. But throughout this week, in the hospital, and even to this day, I went out of my way to ensure my mom was okay, but not that Kevin and Derek were especially Kevin. I wish I would have taken more alone time with him, to ask him questions about how he was feeling, and to tell him that I didn't blame him either. To make him feel like he had a big brother that cared about his well-being, and wasn't trying to take sides because of how I felt about his father. I've always been a mediator in my life, between friends, co-workers. I feel like I'm a person that can bridge the gap when needed, but I never found a way of doing that in my own family. 
I think I could have held the key to ensuring Kevin and Derek didn't feel so isolated from our family after this situation. Instead, I think I had a large part in dividing the family by not offering this communication to them. So as my mom expressed her love to Kevin and Derek before they left, I didn't. I turned back to my mom, who was obviously okay, and let them walk away. After visitation on Sunday, my mom and I made a plan for the week. She helped me get contacts for Stephen and Brittany's teachers and coaches to ensure that they could resume a normal life on Monday morning, with Kelly, my ex Jack, and myself splitting time between the hospital. Jack, who was still in college, had to get back to class on Monday, but he worked out when he could come down at night to help out. Remember that Kevin had gone to live with Greg and Jane a few months back, so he was all taken care of on the school end. My roommate Michelle and all my friends had headed back to work or school as well. That night, I drove the kids back home and slept in a bed for the first time in three nights. Or so I thought. Brittany, Stephen, and I were so weirded out by mom not being in the house that we made a little sleepover in the living room and ordered pizza. We fell asleep there after making sure everyone's homework was packed. The next morning, we got up and drove to school. I dropped them off and headed back down to relieve Kelly. Apparently, Kelly and my mom had had a sleepover as well, and despite doctor's orders, my mom had drank some Coca-Cola. At this point, my mom still had a single tube down her throat and into her stomach that would basically suck up anything she ate or drank, so she wasn't supposed to have anything that would be harmful until the tube got removed. That tube could be removed when less than some designated amount of bile or whatever else ceased to stop filling up a tiny bucket. But my mom wanted Coca-Cola, so she would get the carbonated sensation down her throat, a little bit of the taste, and then the Coca-Cola would be sucked out of her stomach and into the bucket, adding more liquid. So my mom was in a pickle of wanting soda, but also wanting her second tube out so that she could eat. And that wasn't happening because the Coca-Cola was making it look like more bile was in the bucket than there actually was. It took two days to get that tube out. All Monday long, I worked to get my mom's finances in line. I collected the money that we had gotten from online donations, paid bills, called places about getting more assistance, and then at one point we noticed my mom's bank account had overdrafted for something over the weekend, so we had to go back and fix that. This was all happening in between breaks to take her to the bathroom or bathe her or help her stretch. I saw more parts of my mom than she was comfortable with, but I told her it prepared me for having to take care of her when she's older. As I think back to all the money we got, and the food, and the assistance, I realize one of my wrongs was also not thanking people enough. I know we talked about prayers versus action, but for all the people that provided action, I of course said thank you in the moment, but since the accident, I don't think I took enough time to really explain to people the magnitude of what their generosity provided. I sort of just used their help to make everything better and then left it at that. 
I wish I would have gone and met with the people who donated and shared my thanks in person, or at the very least, wrote cards. I know most of them knew how my mom was progressing on Facebook, but even the smallest deed deserved more than a Facebook update. I know a lot of you are listening to this, and I know that's where I could have done better. In the weeks and months after your support, I should have looked you in the eye and said thank you. I know this isn't the same thing, but thank you, thank you, thank you. That Tuesday evening, Stephen had his Christmas pageant at school. Greg and Jane had promised him that they would come down and bring a pot of beef stew for us to eat on during the week. Aunt Kelly stayed with my mom that evening, so I dressed Stephen up, along with Brittany and myself, to have a night of Christmas cheer. Being from a small town, any school event is like a community gathering. So when I walked into the gymnasium of Stephen's school with the kids in hand, the stairs were endless. A few people whispered back and forth, and soon we found some family friends to sit with. The local paper had done a good job of reporting the shooting, but never really did any follow-up. Or if they did, they didn't include all the details. So keeping Kevin's name out of conversations was top priority. But of course, everyone wanted to know what happened. Keeping the story short, I said that a gun had simply gone off. Others had gotten more details from whoever and asked about Kevin specifically. Some still thought it was a car accident based on my vague Facebook posts. I kept my answers generic and ensured everyone that everyone else was okay. I saved room for Greg and Jane and my brother Derek, but after the third iteration of Frosty the Snowman, I realized they weren't coming, which also meant no dinner. But the kids were excited when I came home and made homemade chicken nuggets instead. I recorded the Christmas pageant and sent it to my mom, who watched it from her hospital bed with Kelly. That was Tuesday, and since Sunday when the kids had last seen their mom, I had been making plans to take all the kids back down to see her on Wednesday night which would be her halfway point in the hospital. No one had any activities, and there was an IU basketball game on, which my mom had specifically asked if she could watch with my brother, Steven. So the plan was to go down after school. Derek would meet us with Kevin, since they were coming from Jane and Greg's, and we'd have the night to spend with mom. When Greg and Jane didn't bring down the stew for us to have on Tuesday night, they texted later on that Derek would bring it down on that Wednesday, and we could eat it before we left to see mom. So Wednesday morning, I messaged Derek to get there around 4 right after Kevin got out of school. He told me that he wouldn't be able to bring the stew or Kevin down because he had dinner plans with his girlfriend's parents. I told him that we had had this planned and that mom was looking forward to seeing everyone. He said he couldn't change the plans, and so I went off. I lectured him about how he came home to take care of his mother and only went to visit her twice for a few hours out of 10 days. See, he was using days that he had planned to use later on to come home. I continued to explain that I had planned this all week, and that we also wanted the beef stew to eat. 
He tried to compromise, saying that he would come down later that night with the stew and eat with us. We needed it before five, so we could get to the hospital with enough time to actually visit and get everyone back for bed since the next day was a school day. I grew increasingly angry and told him he could bring the stew down if he wanted, but that I would be leaving with Stephen and Brittany after they got out of school to go visit mom. It was not a good conversation. So I took Stephen and Brittany down after school to hang out with mom. We got KFC and Stephen got to sit and snuggle with mom in an IU blanket as they watched the game. After a night of hanging out, Stephen let me know that he had a big project where he had to make a bow and arrow for class. So we ended up getting home at 11 after picking up some supplies. The stew had been dropped off, Brittany went to bed, but Stephen had to stay up to build a bow and arrow with me. So we went to bed around midnight. I got a call from Greg asking me why I had taken the kids down and kept them out so late. Considering the hospital was an hour away, we weren't that late, I explained, and the kids normally didn't go to bed until 11 anyways. We've always been night owls. He told me he was the father and got to make the decisions, and I told him that I was a better father than him. He let me know that the cops would be there to take the kids away the next day, even though it was technically my mom's time, so she could give permission for them to stay with me regardless. Another not-so-great phone call. The next day came, no cops showed up, Greg didn't call me again. Instead, we were back to the same spot we were before the accident, incommunicable and judgmental of each other's lifestyles. With my brother Derek and Greg, I wish I had been a little more calm and compassionate. They had both still done a lot to ensure the kids and my mom were okay, that I was okay. Instead of working with them, I immediately took control, and when I didn't get what I wanted, I lashed out. My brother had flown over 12 hours to get home with a few hours notice. He hadn't seen friends and other family in a long time. Greg was tasked with figuring out how to care for three kids whose mom almost died. I let the situation continue to ruin the troubled relationships I had with each of them, instead of using it as a time of unity. I apologize for my actions. I know they think I put too much pressure on the kids to go see their mom, but at the end of the day, the kids were only at the hospital for two days, and Derek was there for two days, out of eight days total. I still don't talk to Derek, or Greg, or Jane, but we made it through the week with everyone still alive. I guess that's the important part. The rest of the week I stayed with my mom as she completed physical therapy. They needed her to be able to successfully walk a certain distance without assistance before releasing her. She tried really hard on Thursday. She wanted out, but it didn't happen. Friday morning, I helped her up and we trekked through the hospital. Other families were just getting there. Others were finally leaving. We were in a part of the hospital where everyone had a happy ending for the most part. 
I walked slowly alongside my mom, so slowly I could barely even do it as my New York walk was pretty quick. She passed by nurses who had taken care of her all week. Her gown would start to slide off, revealing too much, so I'd catch it and tie it back. She would grab my hand just to rest or turn a corner in case someone bumped into her. We turned down the last leg of her route and triumphantly made it back to her room. She was free to go. I had brought clothes down for her that she'd requested. I helped her bathe one last time, and then she sat down as she hair dried her red hair and put on a slight bit of makeup. She slid right into her clothes, going down about three pant sizes over the week. She was already at like size two before the accident. The nurse taught me how to change her catheter and explained all the medicine she was on and explained what exercises she could do to alleviate aches and pains, even though her one leg was really the only pain she had. They figured that through the trauma, one of the nerves in her leg had been stunned and she would have to work on getting that nerve back to normal to ease the pain. But for now, pills helped. She cried as she said goodbye to her nurses and I cried at this amazing feat we had overcome together. We packed up the bags and wheeled her out to the car. It was about 5 p.m., about seven and a half days in the hospital. When I found out that she'd be leaving that day, I messaged a bunch of people to see if they would meet at my house to welcome her in the driveway. Unfortunately, a number of people showed up, but it took almost two hours to get home because my mom had to keep stopping to dump her catheter or stretch her leg. So when we got there, everyone had left, but they left a beautiful rainbow of signs welcoming her home and wishing her a great recovery. I thought back to what I had told Jack and Brittany when we left the house the first day after the accident. I told them that we would bring her home and we did. She was finally back. That weekend, friends and family stopped through to say hi or bring meals. We sat around and chatted, and then my mom would rest for several hours, and I could finally catch up on all the Netflix shows I had fallen behind on. You know, priorities. As you know, through this whole process, I used Facebook as a tool to share information and keep people informed in a productive way instead of texting or calling people individually. But in the week between my mom getting shot and her returning home, there were six mass shootings in the United States, which resulted in 22 deaths and 38 injuries. This included the mass shootings in San Bernardino on December 2nd. These were only the mass shootings. Several other accidental shootings and deaths also occurred in this week alone. So I had taken to Facebook to post several gun reform articles about how we could move toward lowering the amount of these deaths and injuries due to guns. While I was on Facebook that night after my mom returned home, I noticed that my grandma and Jane had posted a few pro-gun articles in response to my gun reform articles. Upon digging, I also realized Jane had deleted all the videos she had of Kevin shooting guns at their house. They often shot targets and whatnot outside their house into a field. All those videos were gone, but Jane and my grandma were posting pro-gun material over and over again. 
I commented with a gun reform article and soon started to get comments from them about how my mom and Jack were to blame for not securing the gun in the car. I immediately blocked them, not wanting to deal with that kind of rhetoric and negativity after the celebratory day of bringing my mom home. In hindsight, this is where things became divided. It became a he said, she said of where the gun was, who was responsible for it, and what Kevin actually did in the car that night. It was my bad to not take this moment as a chance to come together as a family and say that no matter what happened, we were all to blame. That this was a freak accident that no one would have wanted or could have expected. To point fingers, to focus on would've could've's, was not productive. But by blocking them that night, I divided the sides. I made it Kevin versus the rest of us. Now, it would have to be decided in the courts. When Donald Trump was elected, I was angry, but also reflective. I wanted to blame the third party voters. I wanted to blame the misguided Trump supporters. But ultimately, I had to look at why my candidate didn't win and why so many Americans elected a man after a pile of evidence pointed to a lack of experience and inability to successfully represent all people, problems that are now coming to light just days into his presidency. Through that week-long reflection, I realized that the most productive way to look at things was to see how my party could have done better. It helped me to come to terms with this election a little more, and ignited me to make change more than if I had just shrugged it off as misinformed voting. That's what I've done today, reflected on what I could have done better, what I contributed to complicate a situation. So the opinion that I've reached is that the most fucked up people in this world are those who never admit fault, who never take the time to apologize or repent, to self-analyze and grow. In some cases, I believe there is 100% someone at fault, but most of the time, and I think in the case of my mom's accident, there is no sole contributor. There are a bunch of people and factors that acted under stress and under the assumption that they were doing what was best. But now that it's been a year since the accident and more than a year for other parts of this story, it's not productive for anyone to play the victim. Everyone is fucked up. Everyone does fucked up things. But there is something admirable about owning up, working toward a solution. If you can't do that, if you can only continue to hold your ego above self-reflection, your righteousness above humility, and your denial above truth. You, my friend, are the fucked up person. Shot is written and produced by me, Tommy Craven, with editorial help again this week from Sarah Barry. Music is provided by Summer Underground. Their latest album, More Than a Friend, Less Than a Lever, is currently available on Spotify and iTunes. Their song, Lever Where Are You, is our theme music for season one. Check them out. Additional music this week provided by Liza St. John from the St. John Sisters, filmmaking friends of mine who are currently releasing their newest short film, Cargo. See the trailer at cargoshortfilm.com. As I said, next episode, I'm inviting anyone to come onto this podcast and discuss anything they feel is unfair or incorrect, or as many have said, flat out lies. 
I invite you now to give your statements and to let your voice be heard, but know that I will still challenge you, like I've challenged myself today. If there are facts, I will use them to counter your arguments. If you give your opinion, I will give mine. If you only focus on what you did right versus what you also did wrong, I will call you out. I am attempting to be as fair as possible by giving everyone a voice, and to talk, and to no longer be a silent character in this story. But fairness is a two-way street we can both travel on, together, to get to the core questions that need to be answered in this story. The next episode is titled, Holes, and will be available in the coming weeks.